Well, good morning, everyone. How you doing? Okay, everybody who's awake? Okay, good. So I, um, I was watching the news yesterday and reading the news um, this morning, and um, uh, so most of you are probably aware of what's going on with um, the Middle East, with Syria, and the, the gassing of over a thousand uh, innocent people, and, um, and how the world is now waiting to see what uh, our nation plans to do about that, if we do anything, or to what level we do something. And I was watching the president uh, speak yesterday, and hearing he's calling Congress together to talk about it, and debate the issue, and, and I was just thinking about how oftentimes, you know, we are so isolated in our own little world, and we, you know, we're comfortable, and everything's good, the sun is out, you know, we have off tomorrow, and we forget about the, the turmoil that the world is in, and, and the big decisions that uh, men and women in our government have to make, and so, you know, whatever your political bent may be, right or left, middle, wherever, you know, uh, we're called in Scripture to pray for uh, those in government and those in authority over us. And so uh, I just want to take a moment before we, we get into what we're going to do this morning to pray for uh, our leaders, okay? Would you join me in that? Our Father, it's easy for us uh, in our comfortable suburban environment to lose sight of what's happening around the world or to perhaps um, minimize the significance of it. And yet, if we think carefully about the amount of nations that are involved, uh, the differing of opinions, the proliferation of weapons, we recognize, God, that uh, we, we, we rest, rest on the cusp of um, potentially some very big and, and, and dangerous uh, events. And so I, I pray for our president this morning. Uh, I pray that you would give him wisdom that you would protect him, that you would uh, grant him a sense of peace, that you would surround him with uh, men and women who are wise and offer good counsel. Pray for those in Congress and the Senate and for the discussions and the debates that are going to happen related to uh, Syria. And Lord, we realize the world is filled with a lot of good things but a lot of bad things and bad people who terrorize and, and kill innocent people. And um, how to always respond to that is not, is not easy to figure out. And so I, I just pray for those in power uh, as they make these decisions and recognize that you are, are at work in the world. May we find comfort in that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as most of you know, and in case you don't, we're in a series called Modern Family Reframed in which we are exploring God's design for healthy families. And so I invite you to open your Bibles with me to um, Psalm 112, Old Testament Psalm 112. Uh, I've got two verses I want to read for you. Uh, but but first, um, first, let me just say that, um, as I said last week, I don't consider myself an expert on all this. But I know at least this much. We all come from a family. We're, we're all part of a family. And no family is perfect. The late, great, well-known comedian George Burns once said, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city, which, you know, is, is, a, is a good way of saying, look, every family has its flaws, you know, its strengths, its weaknesses, good, bad, the ugly, everything in between, and we have to work through that and deal with it. It's just an undeniable reality, but it's also a biblical reality. 
Uh, our human condition is the result of a flawed first family. You know, Adam and Eve had their own conflict. They ended up having two boys. One was a murderer. Uh, Noah rescued his wife and kids from disaster, but ended up drunk and naked in front of everybody. That's not good. Jacob and Esau experienced some severe sibling rivalry that was fueled by a naive father and scheming mother. Joseph had 11 brothers who sold him into slavery and then lied about it. David was an adulterer and a murderer who had a son who was a rapist. And then we get to the New Testament and there's Mary and Joseph. And with them we say, oh man, finally we have, you know, finally we have a wonderful family. But they forgot Jesus one day. They lost him in Jerusalem. They completely forgot him. They ended up finding him alone in the temple. So, you know, there's really no such thing as perfect, of perfect family, no such thing as, as perfect parents. Uh, one of the books I've been reading this, this summer is a New York Times bestseller entitled My Dad is Fat by Jim Gaffigan. I don't know if you're familiar with Jim Gaffigan. He's a comedian. Uh, and he writes this book. He's pretty funny, and he writes this book. It's, it's essentially observations on parenthood from a father's perspective. He has five kids. And he has some really funny things to say, and he, he, and he talks about messing up a lot as a parent. And he says this at one point, he says, you know, I wasn't ready for the guilt of being a parent. I was raised in a religious environment, so guilt is a familiar friend. I grew up with a God is watching you, so you better not make a mad mentality, and I felt guilty for everything. And then he says, but no matter how hard you try to be a good parent, you always know down deep that you could do better, you could do more. And he says, I know I'm not perfect, so I'm shooting for progress not perfection. And I, I like that, progress, or not perfection. I think that's pretty good advice. And I want us to keep that in mind as we talk about this morning the idea of legacy. Because legacy um, is really not about living a perfect life, but about living an intentional one. Here in Psalm uh, 112, the writer begins his song this way in verse, verse 1. He says, Blessed are those who fear the Lord who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the up upright will be blessed. Now, this is just one verse among many in the Old and New Testament that speaks to the idea of legacy. In fact, emphasized throughout Scripture from beginning to end is the responsibility of God's people to influence the generations that follow. And make no mistake about it, okay, this is not, this is not just about being a parent, Every single one of us in the room has an opportunity at some point or another to, to have a positive impact on someone younger. I mean, you could be an aunt or an uncle. You could be an older brother, an older sister. You could be a senior in high school, senior in college, where you can impact underclassmen. Uh, if you work with children, if you're a teacher, if you're a coach, uh, if you serve in student ministry or children's ministry, you have the opportunity to influence those who are younger. So here's my point. Don't check out on this discussion simply because you may not be a parent. Legacy goes well beyond that. Now, the word legacy, at least for me, sounds a bit ominous, you know, a little intimidating, because I know I'm supposed to leave one, especially for those who are closest to me, but what exactly, what exactly are we talking about? And legacy can be defined this way. It's something handed down or received from an ancestor or a predecessor. Here's my shot at it. It's what we leave for those who come after us. And I'm not talking about inheritance. I'm not talking about money or property here. What, what I'm talking about is the legacy of your life, your character, the model, the example that you leave to those around you. You see, here's the deal. With legacy, uh, with legacy we, uh, here's the deal with legacy. We all leave one, 
uh, uh, sorry, we all receive one, right, from those who went before us. We all leave one to those who uh, come after us. Uh, we all create a legacy that will either help or hinder the next generation, and the decisions we make today determine the legacy we leave tomorrow. Now, the more and more I've, I've been thinking about this, the more I realize that the legacy I leave to my children as a parent, the legacy really that I leave as a pastor to this congregation is really important to me. And I want to leave a good one. I want to leave a healthy one, a positive, godly, inspiring one. But in order for me to do that, in whatever venue, in order for you to do that, to leave that kind of a legacy, all of us, we first have to intentionally live one. Um, I realized a long time ago that I have very little control over what my children choose to do or not do, believe or not believe, and I have no control over you. The only thing I really have control over is how I live every day. The things I say, the decisions I make, the actions I take. And that's where our legacies begin. And so from a, a biblical personal perspective, here's what's important to me in terms of legacy. And your list might be a little different, but here's what's important to me. And since we're in a, a series on family, uh, this is especially uh, in terms of what I want to leave for my kids. Okay, so first I want to leave a legacy of integrity. Now integrity, integrity refers to the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. It's a consistency of values, actions, methods, expectations, and outcomes. Basically, it's the opposite of hypocrisy. And when I entered ministry years ago, um, the senior pastor I was working for and working with, who, I've, uh, who we've become very, very good friends over the years and we've stayed close, he pulled me aside one day and he said, Ray, you have one thing people can't take from you. And that's your integrity. You can only give that away. And he said, don't do that. And that insight, that advice has stuck with me since the day he said it some 25 years ago. And the same is true for you. You have one thing people cannot take from you. That's your integrity. But you can give it away. Have you ever given away your integrity? A lot of people do. Um, let's take honesty, for example, as one aspect of integrity. Honesty is a choice, right? I mean, every single day in life, we decide from situation to situation whether to tell the truth or tell a lie. Last August 2012, researchers from Notre Dame presented a study to uh, the American Psychological Association on the science of honesty, and the study showed that uh, Americans lie 11 times per week, about one and a half times a day. I don't know how you tell a half lie, but that's, that's the percentages. Um, and yet, yet, by and large, we view ourselves as really honest. According to the study, people behave dishonestly enough to profit, but honestly enough to delude themselves of their own integrity. The study also found that although we're willing to lie, Americans expect relational partners, children, and acquaintances to be honest and get upset when they discover they've been lied to. In other words, it's, it's okay that I lie, but don't you lie to me. See, that's how it works. The study went on to demonstrate that lying is really bad for your health. It causes a lot of stress and, uh, uh, and, and increases your blood pressure and all these things. But what the study didn't prove and really didn't need to is that lying damages our relationships, whether in business, whether in church, whether friendships or family. I mean, it's no secret to anybody that the foundation of, of, of safe, healthy, productive relationships is honesty. And when, when truth is replaced by deceit in any relationship... That relationship is wounded. 
love is undermined, trust um, is diminished, and a breakdown occurs. In the Old Testament, the writer of Proverbs puts it this way, like a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is the one who gives false testimony against a neighbor. In other words, lying leads only to pain and division and brokenness. And see, that's exactly why God calls us to be men and women who in love speak the truth to one another. Because as our creator, he knows what is best and right and good and healthy for us, and he wants what's best for us and what's good. He wants to protect our relationships. And so he calls us to have integrity. Having integrity means that when you say something, it's true. And people around you know it's true. You know, it also involves that, you know, when you make a promise that you keep it. Scripture says it's better not to make a promise than to make one and break it. So integrity is important. Uh, Here's something else that's important to me in terms of leaving a legacy. Intellectual inquisitiveness. Uh, You know, I have never wanted to merely tell my kids what to think. But more importantly, teach them how to think. My wife Margie and I have, have always tried to encourage them to listen carefully to read voraciously, and to ask questions. And Jesus, you know, Jesus modeled this to his disciples. You think about it, he'd, he'd make a statement, right, to the group, or he'd tell a story, or he'd ref, refer to a, a, a scripture, or he'd show them something about the world around them, and they would, then he would ask them what they thought about it. Several of Jesus' most well-known parables begin with these words, what do you think? I mean, understand, Christianity is, um, is not irrational, as some of its critics propose. Uh, and in a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile to it, it's imperative that we, we raise up a generation of clear, rational thinkers who not only grasp biblical truth, but who also understand how that truth intersects with culture and who can hold their own in healthy dialogue with anybody about God, about the world, about human existence. You know, we in the church, I think, have done a pretty good job keeping the the spiritual, moral, relational things before our kids, but have often relegated art and logic and science to the world. And that's a mistake. You know, one of the reasons I often mention you know, music and, and science and even atheism on Sunday mornings is to encourage all of us to think, to think about how our faith relates to those cultural issues. Why? So that we can, so that we can hold intelligent conversations with people from all walks of life and all worldviews. In my opinion, as Christians, we should be, and we should be raising the best read most culturally informed, analytically-minded, logical thinkers around. Because being a person of faith doesn't mean we check our brains in at the door. Jesus encourages us to be thinkers. It's also important to me to leave my kids a legacy of global awareness. You know, I grew up up in North New Jersey, just outside New York, and um, wasn't sure anything east of New York or west of Philly actually existed, you know, because my world was very, very small. Neither of my parents graduated high school. They weren't experienced travelers or anything like that. And so my exposure to and awareness of the world at large was very limited. But one thing that I've come to realize over the years is that God created not, not, not just North Jersey, although we all know that it's true, but God created not just North Jersey and not just America, but the whole world. And although we can 
all easily quote it. We tend to forget the significance of the words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In other words, God is lovingly and actively at work around the world among people and cultures that are very, very different from ours. And reading about foreign lands and meeting with people from those faraway places is helpful, but what has actually transformed and solidified at least my understanding of God being a global God has been traveling to those faraway places when given the opportunity. Now, those of you who know me know I am not a good traveler. I am a terrible, anxious, freaked-out traveler. Flying in planes, flying in planes isn't the problem. It's dropping that's the problem. You know what I mean? And I just feel like I'm cooped up in a, a, a ballistic missile. So I'm not a great traveler long distance, but, but pushing myself to, to go to places like Central America, India, Jordan, it's given me a deeper appreciation and heart of concern for the men, women, and children living in those nations who, who God loves just as much as he loves us. And it's helped me realize how much we as Americans have in comparison to so many around the world. It's made me more grateful for what I have and what I've been given. And I know that's true for many of you because many of you have experienced the same kind of thing by going with Parkview uh, teams to serve in places like India or the Philippines or going with us to dig wells with, with Living Water International in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Haiti. Our students have gone to Mexico. I mean, look, you don't come back from places like that unchanged. And so it seems to me that in whatever way we can, because we can't all travel those long distances, but in whatever way we can, we need to strategically expand our own global awareness in order to help our children understand that the world is, so, such, is, is a much, much bigger place than just the, the burbs of Chicago, which, if we're honest, in certain pockets can, very, can be very homogeneous. You know, God cares about the world, all of it, enough to send his son into it. In addition, I want to leave my kids a legacy of compassion and generosity, which is in some ways just a no-brainer, right? I mean, um, have you ever heard a parent say, I'm hoping my kids grow up to be cold, heartless, greedy slobs? You don't hear parents say that, right? No. Not even, not even the most dedicated atheist parent will say that. They, too, want their kids to be compassionate and generous, which is interesting to me because if you really believe our world and life as we know it is a, is a, is a nonsensical, cosmological, biological, evolutionary accident with no purpose going nowhere except final extinction because every person expires, every star burns out, and every planet eventually dies, if that's truly your worldview of reality, then it seems to me, you know, what does it really matter whether your kids are one thing or another? It's all for naught. It's survival of the fittest. And yet, there's something deeply ingrained in all of us, something in our humanness that tells us compassion and generosity are good things. Why? Because those characteristics mirror the very nature of the God who created us. And so we know they're good, and we, we want to be those things. I also want to leave my children a legacy of grace. You know, when my, my kids were little, dinner was often a struggle. I don't know if you realize that. Have you ever experienced that? But uh, there were times at the table when 
uh, Megan or Corey just wouldn't, wouldn't eat their food. And the rule in the house was if you don't eat dinner, you don't, you don't get dessert. And I remember one time in particular when Corey was little and he just refused to eat, absolutely would not eat anything. We're like, that's fine, but there's no ice cream later. And at the moment, he was cool with that idea. But later on, when snack time came and everybody else was eating ice cream except Corey, you know, he, was, he got pretty, pretty upset by it, pretty devastated. And so I took that opportunity to try and teach him about grace and how grace is all about getting something that we don't deserve, not just from dad, but from God. And we talked about it, and I gave him ice cream. And I remember after that, he used to say, Dad, I need a little grace. I need a little grace about everything, you know. <laughs> I need a little grace, Dad. Don't we all, son? Don't we all, right? Uh, well, now the kids are they're, they're older. Situations are different. Issues a little bigger. Discussions more sophisticated. But my desire to express and demonstrate the meaning of grace to them remains as strong as ever. Because, look, unless we grasp, old and young alike, unless we grasp the concept of grace, unmerited favor... You will never grasp the truth of the gospel of Jesus, which is all about grace and forgiveness. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, the late Christian thinker and Oxford professor C.S. Lewis summarized it all this way very, very well. He said, look, it is grace that makes Christianity distinctive. And it's true. And you hear me talk about it all the time, but talk is cheap. My life needs to be an ongoing demonstration of grace. In fact, I would suggest that the most important thing that we can do in our homes and in our churches is cultivate an environment of grace and excessive forgiveness. And then finally, I want to leave my children a legacy of spiritual authenticity. In other words, the guy they know at home is dad is the same guy they say standing up here on Sunday morning talking to you. I'm not duplicitous. Um, I don't pretend to be something I'm not. I practice what I preach as the old adage goes. Um, and there's reason for that for me. You know, when I was a kid, every once in a while on a holiday when my parents would drag us to church, I remember, like, where are we going? You know, where are we going? We're going to church, you know. I don't want to go to church. And we'd be in the back, my brother and I'd be fighting and scrapping, and my, my parents would be, you know, swearing at us, you know, trying to get us in the back seat, and we're ducking and weaving, you know. And, and we're like, everybody's mad at each other. And we walk in the church, and my parents were like, oh, you know, it was like, who are you people? These halos appeared over their heads, and I'm like, wings came out my dad's back. And, you know, I'm like, who are you people? And we walk out of the door, we get in the car, and it was back to normal, you know. And I thought, is this, this is what this Christian thing is? Man, we go in and pretend for an hour, and then we get back in the car and go at each other? That was weird for me. And I didn't really want anything to do with that kind of weirdness, you know. And the, here's the point. Kids pick up very quickly on inconsistencies. And they live with us every day. And so they know, they know how serious we are about faith. Is it just a bunch of religious talk, holiday activity, schmarmy pretense, or is it a life-altering reality, a 24-7 deal? A while back, the research firm Zogby International took a survey of young Americans and asked an interesting question. Asked, asked them, what would you like most to be known for? Being intelligent, being good-looking, or having a sense of humor? 50% of those polled gave an unexpected answer, one that wasn't offered. They said, 50% said they wanted to be known as authentic. 
Fascinating. What it tells us is that in a society of never-ending spin and hype, our postmodern generation is searching desperately for something genuine, something real, something authentic. And they will not take Jesus or Christianity seriously unless we in the church take those things seriously and demonstrate authentic spiritual living and commitment. The postmodern credo is this, authenticity rules, hypocrisy rots. Larry Taunton is an author and cultural commentator, executive director of Fixed Point Foundations, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the defense, public defense of Christian faith. This past June 2013, he wrote an article in the Atlantic magazine called Listening to Young Atheists, Lessons for a Stronger Christianity. The article is about how his organization went across the country and, and polled and interviewed uh, young atheists in colleges and universities and asked them a bunch of questions. What they found was that most of them had, or had attended church but quit. They left the church. And so they said, well, why? Two of the, the, uh, the most common answers were, um, well, the mission and message of church was vague. And secondly, Christians we know didn't live what they say they believed. And so in response to the study, Taunton wrote this article, and in it he says, Christianity, when taken seriously, compels its adherents to engage the world, not retreat from it. These students were, above all else, idealists who longed for spiritual authenticity and having failed to find it in their churches, settled for a non-belief that, while less grand in its promises, felt more genuine and attainable. How could that be? Some of it, I think, is because there are some atheists who are very, very passionate and committed to their atheism, almost angry. Here's my Reiki translation. Our children, their friends, the next generation, desperately want to connect their lives to something of greater purpose, something that matters, something real, something that they can be passionate about, something that's, that, that, that involves a cause bigger than themselves. And sadly, I'd suggest that the superficial, disingenuous uh, disingenuous faith of Christians is the cause for much of the disillusionment. In fact, this week I was reminded of the rather prophetic words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, who said, if today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. He wrote that in 1963. And in many respects, his warning has become a reality. I mean, let's face it, in a culture that worships all kinds of things, and where our allegiance and, and our passions are pulled in, in various number of directions, there, there are moments when we as professed Christians, parents, all of us, need to reassess the seriousness of our spiritual commitment. And we might consider asking ourselves some questions and and commit ourselves to be brutally honest with the answers. Questions like, how real is God to me? Do I actually know what I believe and why I believe it? Is my relationship to God merely theoretical? Do my actions reflect what I say I believe? How is my love for God being modeled every day before my children? And am I leaving a legacy of authentic, or living a legacy of authentic Christian faith and commitment? Tough questions to answer. You know, one of the saddest periods of history 
in the life of ancient Israel, uh, at least from my perspective, came soon after the days of Joshua. You remember Joshua led the people into the promised land. They took the land where they settled and they built homes and enjoyed freedom and prosperity. But that prosperity in many ways contributed to a spiritual apathy that grew among the people and ended up being passed down to their children. The people began to take things for granted. They got too busy for God. And soon after Joshua's death, God had completely fallen off the radar of an entire generation. The book of Judges summarizes it this way, that after the whole generation, Joshua's generation, had been gathered to their ancestors, in other words, they passed away, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now what happened? We have Joshua his children and their children. Suddenly, God's not in the picture anymore. What happened? I mean, clearly there was, a, there was a spiritual legacy problem somewhere along the line whereby an entire generation of people, young people, drifted from, the faith, from faith in the God who had given them all that they had, all that they enjoyed. Leaving a legacy to our kids matters. And that legacy is being formed and solidified every single day by what you, by what you say and do. And, and, and you say, well, whoa, man, that, that's pretty heavy. That's a heavy responsibility. You're right, it is. And I feel the weight of that too. But here's the thing we need to keep in mind. That leaving a good, healthy, positive, and godly legacy isn't about living a perfect life. It's about living an intentional one. You know, one of integrity, one of intellectual prowess, one of global awareness, of grace, compassion, generosity, spiritual authenticity. How intentional are you living before the young people in your life who, make no mistake about it, who are watching? Now, I realize that after hearing this, some of us may say, well, that's a bummer, man. It's too late for me. I, I totally messed up. You know, I I'd messed up. My kids are too old. They're grown. My ability to influence them is past. Nonsense. It's never too late to influence someone somehow. I mean, again, when you read the stories in Scripture of certain men and women and their families, it's not hard to feel a little better about yours and mine. You know what I'm saying? Because some of those families are pretty messed up, and those people are messed up. And if God can use those broken, sinfully imperfect people to accomplish his will and plan of redemption, then he can use broken people like you and me. And so it makes no difference to me what your story is, what your experiences have been, or what baggage you carry. As long as you have breath, there is hope for you to leave a positive legacy. The fact is, God wants to use you, your family, your parenting, your serving, your life to impact the generation that follows. It's not about living perfectly, just intentionally. And my prayer is that we will. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, there is a weight of responsibility that goes along with this idea of legacy, that what we do every day, what we say, the behaviors uh, we're involved with, the actions that we take uh, every single day, these things are modeling before those who are coming behind us. What are we modeling to them? Um, that's a tough question, maybe even painful to answer. 
Uh, but I, I pray, Lord, that uh, as your people, whether parents or not, we would, we would take inventory of our own lives and um, be brutally, brutally honest with you and with ourselves about what, what's really happening and realize that it's never too late to begin a legacy that is positive and healthy and good and godly. That until they lay us in the grave, we have the opportunity to influence those who come behind us. May we, may we have a passion to do so and do it well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, here's the deal. For us to influence the next generation, it's not about, sometimes we talk about the church, we think about programs. We need better programs, more programs, bigger programs. Man, it's not going to work. That's not what it's about. It's about me. It's about you. And it's about our relationship with God being, being real and genuine and committed and faithful. And that is where it begins. That's where the legacy begins. And so this week, I hope you will go out and, and live a legacy um, worth leaving uh, for those who come after us. Uh, maybe in your, your life right now, there's some things that are maybe keeping you from that, or you really have never made that kind of a commitment to Jesus, or you still have questions about it, or maybe just struggling something in, with something in life. Uh, we have Right now, we have some of our prayer team uh, folks will be down front. Just come down and talk with them. They'll be willing to pray with you and encourage you, so uh, you can make yourself available to them, okay? Hope you can come back next week. We're going to wrap up this series on family. I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, in the meantime, have a great holiday. Let me pray for you. And now, Lord, I do pray that as we go from this building, as your church leaves and enters into our world again, uh, a world that needs to see what it means for the church to be godly and for us to uh, model who Jesus is so that we can point people to him, I pray that you would enable us and give us the strength and the courage to live a legacy worth leaving. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you guys next Sunday.